Standard Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'm here up top to tell you that this is an Edinburgh Fringe special where you'll find me, Hannah and Jen chatting to some cracking funny birds. First up, Jen Brister has us in tux chatting about her show Meaningless, which deals with having toddler twins, your mum moving in and how that can really interfere with you learning the meaning of life. I managed to grab Cindy V on the phone to talk about her debut Edinburgh show, Sandhog, which looks at how irrational love is when it comes to kids, spouses and parents. Jane Hill opens up about her relationship with alcohol for her show Addicted to Fun. Kiri Pritchard-McLean deals with coercive control in Victim Complex. And that's right, you heard the comma in there, legend. And finally, Ruth Brout of The Jaw Dropping Showstopper gives us the lowdown on improvising musicals and musicals in general which is something you can hear more about in this week's Sunday Chops. All of these brilliant, hilarious and, to be honest, irritatingly talented women are well worth your time and money, so if you're up in Edinburgh, please do go see them. A quick rundown. Jen Brister is on at Monkey Barrel at 1.35pm and you can also catch her at our Standard Issue Stands Up gig on August the 14th at 9.35pm. Sindhu V is on at the Attic in Pleasance Courtyard at 4.30pm and she's on our Standard Issue Stands Up gig on August the 13th at 9.35pm. Jane Hill is at the Laughing Horse at 3.40pm. Kiri Pritchard-McLean is in Bunker 2 in Pleasance Courtyard at 8pm. And finally, Showstopper is on at the Grand in Pleasance Courtyard, mainly at 6pm, but times do vary. Anyway, enough of my wanging. To the comedy room! Hello, we're joined by Jen Brister. Superwoman, super comedian... Super here. Yeah, I'm definitely the latter. (laughs) I am very much here. I like all the other super bits, though. Yeah? Keep those in. We will, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, we'd just be like, woman, (laughs) Jen, here. (laughs) I know what you guys are doing. Edit that bit out afterwards. She won't listen. (laughs) (laughs) You have come in to chat to us about your forthcoming Edinburgh show. And hang on, what's this? Debut solo tour? Oh, yes. I know, I know. Well, just tag it on the end and hope someone turns up. I'm like, it's kind of hubris, really, but it's all these dates. <laughs> I mean, but you can. This is the thing. You 100% can book as many dates as you want. Stafford, yeah, get him in. Stafford, I, I, Lancaster, never been. Let's do it. Whether or not anyone turns up is an entirely different issue. I'm sure but they I have will. got a tour starting at the end of September until the end of November. So it's two and a half months, 18 dates, and uh, yeah, we'll see. I definitely think I'll get people in Brighton because I live there. And I can literally just I walk over w- there. Yeah, I just walk people to the venue. <laughs> it's over here, mate. Off you go. Like a little um, Jen Brister tour of Brighton. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I'd be very good at it. I've only lived there four years. I'd be like, uh, and I didn't, I didn't go anywhere for the first two and a half because of the children. So you probably know Are more about Brighton than I do. And a half now? They're three and a half now. Both of them. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> it, wouldn't it be weird as twins if one of them just aged that bit quicker? Like one of them was Benjamin Button. <laughs> yeah. He started at, he was like 102 when he came out. He's like uh, 96. I haven't got I haven't got any idea about maths. That's wrong. Um, yeah, no, they're both three and a half. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And is the title of your show a sort of indicator about how you're feeling about life? Meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Firstly, the title became before the show. <laughs> so I am having to crowbar some uh, sense into the title. It is about my kids to a point, and they do appear quite a lot in the show, but it's not a show about kids because that would be boring. I think a lot of it... Okay, so there's two parts to the show. 
and this is why it's morphed into something else. My mother's living with me and oh has God. yeah admit, your face is exactly the correct face oh God. and has been oh, it's been very tense and it has been since January the 12th oh my goodness the 12th. that's very specific yeah it's July um, uh-huh. it's very specific because that I mean I could probably do hours and seconds for you she is tense I don't know I don't know how much time you spend with your mum but every day, Not six months at a time. No, nobody wants that, do they? Oh, I mean, I know what would happen if I lived with my mum. Like Grey Gardens would happen. <laughs> I would just be dressed up in fancy dress, just dancing around, going, "People look at me. <laughs> yeah. Any conversation, anyone at all, talk to me." It has gotten quite bad, and we are now at sort of like an impasse where we're not actually even talking but we are talking but it's in that very mm, yes okay fine blah 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 well I she doesn't talk like that she's Spanish oh she's got to go and um, (laughs) the show is actually partly about that it's partly about my mum living with me partly about how our relationships with mothers and daughters are different because I've got two boys I've got sons so we talk about how we mother our daughters and how we mother our sons because I've got three brothers very different by the way, and how my relationship is really different. When my mum behaves with me, she would never, ever do with my brothers. From the character, I don't know if it's a character or you're just being very candid on stage when you've mentioned your mum before. She seems quite controlling and, and like, not scared of telling you what she thinks she uh, should be doing. I mean, I've, that isn't, like, she... I have toned it down. <laughs> I have really toned it down. And people are always like, yeah, you know, was your mom, does your mum really sound like she's from Croydon? I'm like, listen, come and stay with my mum and you will see exactly who she is I love her I I love that woman but she's got to get out of my house now <laughs> she's got to get out for, for for me to feel any sense of perspective about who I am now because she keeps telling me who I am and I'm like I think I know who I am but you keep telling me who I am could you just get the fuck out of my house so I can get back to who I actually am <laughs> Who are you, Jen? I don't know. Is there a possibility of this? Or is it is it like Manana? No, it's coming. Okay. She's got a house now. It's in Brighton, dear God. <laughs> but she has to get a bus to get to mine, so that's fine. Uh, we're doing it up. But, yeah, God. I don't know if I'm sweating because of this, how hot it is in here, or if, because I'm talking about it. So th- this very much infected my show. It's very much a show about how we, I guess societally, how we treat men and women differently. And I, and I, and I talk about it, how it comes from our mothers and I'm specifically you know there's going to be a lot of generalizations here which I understand don't apply to everyone but I think I've had enough feedback from women that have gone that I can relate that's where it starts and then it kind of goes off piece a bit what we expect and what we want from life you know and how society kind of impinges that and how women are how we are our own worst enemy because we're pitted against one another. It's an hour of ranting, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. And depending who's in the room, it either really flies or it's... Yeah, it's quite painful. Did you, when you were expecting the twins, did you think, I am not going to be anything like my mother? Oh, God, oh yeah. And are you? I, I should probably. <laughs> I mean, I'm not... I, there's like We had an incident recently, which I'm not even going to go into because it, it's, it's kind of irrelevant, but the expectation of what I was supposed to do and what I was capable of doing, you know, and also I haven't got... I ha- I can't read her fucking mind. <laughs> I cannot read her mind. <laughs> and so she doesn't communicate certain things to me and then goes, well, you did this and uh, this is how you made me feel. And it's like, holy... Well, I, you know, 
I was doing this, Mum. You saw I was doing this. You could have come over and asked me, and then I would have helped you. No. I don't go to you. You come to me. I am your mother. It's like that. <laughs> All the time, every day. Is there something in Spanish culture that exaggerates this, or is this? do you think this is a general... Oh, I don't know. Maybe the Catholic martyr guilt thing. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Victim. Familiar with yeah. that. So there's that. Catholic martyr guilt, expectation, daughter, disappointment, son's better, daughter's... <laughs> disappointment can't ever you I, I i mean also because we've just recently had this huge row i am at my wits end now where i'm in my own house and she's telling me off she has to go um i keep saying <laughs> how that. does she feel about you yeah uh, talking about her or she... do you know what um Jen's got a look that she currently doesn't She, care. I, I literally, apart from getting mainlining and giving her every ounce of blood I have left in my body, I don't really know what else I can do. And there's nothing <laughs> in the show where uh, I don't, I'm not the, you know, I'm not the, I don't oh, come off joke. worse. Yeah. There is no, there's no way that my mum is the butt of any joke. So uh, I am the butt of every joke. So I don't, and I always do that because one, I, you know, I love my mum and I, I actually have a lot of respect for her even though I absolutely at the moment can't even bear to look at her face. Um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but so I would never do that. And, and also the audience don't want that because they've kind of, I, they've kind of got to know my mum and they really like her. And um, I think they would be really disappointed in me. Even though this character, she's a, a character, they still are like, no, but we really like your mum, so be nice about her sort of thing. The thing is, like, we get on so much better when we don't see each other very much. And then when we see each other, it's fine. We, we can even enjoy each other's company for a, like a, a couple I of days. I you. <laughs> <laughs> for like a day or so. I mean, bearing in mind, I've had to like really suck up a lot of shit if you can imagine she's living in my house for six and a half months, I have sucked up a lot of shit. So there's a lot of stuff that I just let go and I don't even comment on. I, and she has no idea. She will let me take the piss out of her on stage. I mean, I like, I can't give them, I've got to give her some credit. I think the, the the problem is our proximity to each other. And we're both very dogmatic, confrontational women who don't ever back down. And so I've been doing a lot of back, backing down. And my mum hasn't backed down at all. And now I've just like said to her, no, it's your turn. It's your, your turn to back down. And she's gone, no. And I'm like, <laughs> no. And I was like, oh. And I thought, I've got nothing. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I've got nothing. I said to my partner, I was like, I've just realised that in any argument, I've got, I've actually got nothing to, to throw at her. Like, if I said you've upset me, she's like, don't care. You know, it's like, I can't. <laughs> So it's like, oh, I just have to like just sit this out till she leaves. So the show is kind of a mixture of that. And also I get to rant about stuff that I think, um, I don't want to say it's a feminist show, but it's kind of difficult not to address stuff that's happened with Me Too and all that kind of stuff. And that does open the floodgates for you to discuss certain things. I'm a woman. I guess it would be seen as feminist rant. But I don't want it to be seen as some kind of like, oh, I don't know. It's Edinburgh, so I've decided to pick a subject. It literally has morphed into something where I get to talk about all these things, and partly because I am the mother of two boys, and partly because my mother is living with me, all of these themes have just tied together quite well to create a screaming hour of comedy. Uh -huh. <laughs> Are you
Jen, as you get older, do you feel like you're getting angrier? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because I saw you supporting Frankie Boyle. Oh, Jesus. Recently. What and day? I, um, oh, it was oh, there the was guy, some really guy, ropey you, ones. But you properly tore into him and tore him a new one. It was oh, brilliant. which night? There were several of those. Oh, I think it was a Tuesday. Well, oh, that means nothing. Um, it was a Tuesday I night. I think... You were phenomenal and just ripped him a new one. I think... My... Well, no, you were talking about bowels and apparently he got really upset that you were talking about bowels because he had a bowel condition oh that guy yeah oh god prick he yeah. could probably have done with a new one then so, he, said, so, 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 he said um, <laughs> oh, he talked the whole way through the set uh, just loudly like hello ha, ha, blah 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 and I was just like I can't concentrate on what I'm saying so could you just you know keep it down and he didn't so I my tolerance is really low you're at the front of a theatre and you're talking would you do that any other theatre? Do no. you think it's acceptable? Would you do that when Frankie Boyle was on stage? Probably not. Why are you doing it when I'm on stage? Oh, I've got Crohn's disease. Well, don't sit at the front of a theatre if you have a bowel disorder and you can't hold on to your shit. Sit at the back where you're near the toilet. And by the way, you're not allowed to come... In a Frankie Boyle performance, if you leave, you're not allowed back in anyway. There's no toilet breaks. No. I mean, he was actually... You know, relatively speaking, one of the easier ones because I, ha- I had some absolute horrors. Really? Yeah, just men shouting stuff at me like, I'd do you up the bum, you must be frigid, just sh- or just shouting anything, just anything they could think of. And, of course, I've got my mum living with me. They don't know that, but my tolerance is zero. So I just go in. I've got twins, I've got, I'm sleep deprived. I have my mother living with me and you're shouting misogynistic shit at me. Right, all bets are off, mate, you're dead. <laughs> I mean, I literally went into a rant with one guy where I just talked about the fact that he was going to die of a syphilitic dementia with a gangrenous cock that would fall off and the last thing he'd see is his cat eating his gangrenous dick. And it just went on for ages. And there was the audience were like, what is wrong with this woman? I was like, I don't care what you think. This guy needs to know that I'm in charge. And that was it. And he didn't speak for the rest of the show. Yeah. He couldn't because he was, co- you know, choking on his own gangrenous penis. I understand... <laughs> Does that answer your question? I'm quite angry. Yeah, you seem quite angry. It's unusual for, even even now, for women to feel confident displaying that. So I don't have to feel confident. I feel it. It's in my bones. And also, I just think all of those men that shout stuff, they don't say a word when Frankie Boyle gets on. Hmm. And I just think it's just a blatant lack of respect. And they just see a woman. They see, oh, she won't be able to do it. She won't be able to handle this. So I'll, I'll teach her a lesson. Uh, God forbid that woman should be up on stage doing something that I probably would love to do, but I'll never be able to do because I've got the fucking chutzpah to do it. I'm doing it. So I'll let them know. No, mate, you don't get to do that. You don't get to say that to me. And I make sure they know that they don't get to say that to any woman. Yeah. And if they try to make me look stupid or make me look small, I'll make sure that I eviscerate them. But I don't enjoy it and I don't take any pleasure at doing it, but I can do it and I will do it and I'm not scared of doing it, and I'm not scared of what they say back to me, because at the end of the day, if it gets really awful, I'll just walk off stage and I still get paid. I lose my temper a lot less in real life now, particularly since the boys were born. I take a lot more stuff on than I used to. On stage, it's gone the opposite. I used to put up with a lot more and go, all right, mate, oh, Bance, you know, oh, what did you say? Oh, that's funny. You think I'm shit because I'm a woman. <laughs> and now I'm just like, no, um, no. I don't think anger's bad. I think it's good. If no, you, you, you give yourself an ulcer, you hang on to it. Yeah. Better to let it go. And, and also, a lot of the time, I 
think a lot of the time as women, if we're angry about something, we've got every right to be. Men are allowed to get angry, and then if women get angry, we're hysterical or we're, mm-hmm. you know, we've lost yeah. control. It's like, I, mad. Yeah, I haven't lost control. Actually, I'm in complete control, and I'm enjoying... Shoving this gangrenous penis down, down your throat. Yeah. Jen, where can we see you in Edinburgh? You can see me. I can't believe that anyone will want to after they've just heard me slagging off my mum and talking about a gangrenous penis. I think there's is. something reassuring about hearing other people oh, it's have incredibly problems with their mum, but there you have it. Yeah. Um, come and see me at the Monkey Barrel at one forty-five every afternoon. It's, it's an, an angry afternoon it's an show. A- Listen, it's the best time to go to a sea show. Your first pint of the day. Get yourself in there. It won't be as hot as it will be later on, but don't expect it not to be an adult show, because it very much is. Hello, it's Mickey here, and I am joined on the phone by Sindhu V. Hi, Sindhu. Hello, Mickey. Thanks so much for chatting to us. No, no, it's my pleasure. I'm enjoying this conversation, and I'm enjoying the weather even more. You're the only person in the UK who's enjoying this weather now. (laughs) I tell you what, I was singing walking down the street and I was getting the worst looks from people. Yeah, because where have you got the energy to sing from? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So anyway, I'm loving it. So you're about to head up to the Edinburgh Fringe. I'm getting there early, two days before my show because I have tech and stuff and got to settle in. You know, got to make sure I have groceries so I'm just not eating grilled cheese sandwiches in the van. (laughs) I mean, that sounds amazing. If, If hot, too hot right now. You know what's funny is that because, you know, I'm born and raised in India, so when the weather is like this, I immediately think of home and I want to eat Indian food and drink hot tea. My kids look at me like I'm literally on drugs. They're like, (laughs) what is the matter with you? And I'm like, oh, let's have, you know, rice and dal. And they're like, please, can we have a cucumber and some ice? (laughs) So funny. (laughs) They think I've lost my mind. Anyway. It's actually your debut Edinburgh show, isn't it? That's right. That's right. And often when comedians are introduced as new, they've actually been slogging their guts out on the circuit for decades. But you're genuinely new to this. (laughs) I am relatively new. I mean, there are people who are taking up their hour and they've been going a year or two less than me. But yes, I feel very new. It's probably been, you know, I've done this for about three years, three and a half years seriously and not very seriously for about five (laughs) Okay. So, you know, I mean, and then for the two years prior to that was not serious because I simply could not understand how to be out late at night and get the kids ready in the morning. You know, <laughs> I, just was, I just couldn't figure it out. But yeah, so I think all in five years, which is very new. I mean, I feel new for sure. And as a successful woman in her 40s, I think you were in banking, right? Yes, I was an investment banker for years, yeah. What made you decide that stand-up was the career for you? It wasn't quite like that in the sense that I, I'd i never seen live stand-up. So I, I, I didn't think, oh, this is a career I want. It was more, it happened. It also didn't happen in complete sequence in the sense I was at home for a decade raising my kids, which is why I left investment banking in the first place. Right. You know, a bit of a cliche, I guess, you know. But the thing is, I just couldn't understand how to be okay with never seeing them. I guess that's the bottom line. Never seeing your kids is a very weird way to have kids. And that bothered me a little bit. So, uh, yeah, so I took a sort of a decade off. And then I had never seen live stand-up when I did it. It just, there was a series of events that took place, which ended up with me being on stage at a gig. I mean, you've got to give me a bit more explanation than that. (laughs) (laughs) A series of events. Basically, what happened was the following, is that I had three kids, all quite young. And with all due respect to my kids who I love dearly, it's very boring. (laughs) 
I mean, you, I mean, literally, you're just, you know, you're just sort of doing that whole feeding, cleaning, taking them to school, doing the homework. Do you know what I mean? And obviously, since I had become an investment banker, it's clear that I didn't intend to do that. As in, it wasn't my life goal to like run around after little kids. What happened was I got an e- I was sitting around the house and I got an email from someone I vaguely knew. And she was like, oh, I'm doing a comedy gig for charity. And then can you give me money? And I've always found that very annoying. It's like, dude. Either ask me for the money or just go do your run. Why do you want me to pay you charity because you're running or whatever? You know, I just find that very odd. I mean, I don't mind giving to a charity. Just say, please give to this charity. Don't be like, oh, I'm going to run. Isn't that great? Give me money. It's like, no, no. Anyway, so I was scrolling. But the thing about her was she was just an acquaintance. Genuinely, of the many unfunny people I've met, she was probably top third of my list. So I was like, how is this person doing comedy? And... I've always loved comedy. I mean, who doesn't love comedy? You know, and people have said, oh, you're very funny. And my mother's very funny. So I scrolled to the bottom of her email and there was a link for funny women. And so I just clicked on it. It was like, oh, we're an organization that supports stand-up for women and so on and so forth. And there was a thing about, oh, you know, do you think you're funny? Come to our workshop. And it was that day. It was a Saturday. My husband was traveling. My kids were with my parents downstairs. My parents were visiting from India. And it was like, oh, come along. And it's like eight pounds or something. And I thought, you know what? If I go to this, I will meet other women. And because this is England, they will go for a drink afterwards. <laughs> ah, I definitely will. Get, you know, I mean, it, it can be quite difficult when you or all your friends have little kids to go out in the evening. You know, because my parents were here, I could. So I sh- genuinely just showed up and it was like late afternoon at this workshop. And then did the, you know, did the workshop, whatever, how to hold a microphone and what is comedy. And then. The people running the workshop were very keen that I get involved with the Funny Women Award. And I said no. And then they were very persistent. And I have to thank both Karen Rosie and Lynn Parker for that. And then finally, they, they said, just, 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 just come do one. Just come do one. So I went to the awards. It was a heat. And I made it straight through to the semifinal. But the interesting thing is that first time that I was doing the heat and I was standing on stage doing a proper five-minute set, which was just three stories about my mother and I, I, I remember thinking, oh... This is what I have to, I I can never not do it again. I very much remember being on stage and thinking, oh, of course, it wasn't scary. It was very much like, oh, okay, so now to do my homework, because this is the thing I have to do. It was just, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my husband. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anyone for weeks. It just stayed with me as something I was like, oh, so this is the thing. It sounds a bit like you fell in love with it. Yeah, right there and then. And that's it. And then, you know, just started doing it like doing, you know, like when you're going to have a baby and you get that book, what to expect when you're expecting. Well, I don't have kids, but I imagine it's a bit like when I'm about to adopt a cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, yeah. When I say, you know, I mean, (laughs) there is a thing out there in the world that you do that. Or, you know, you like read up when you're going to get a pet or anything like that. I just went and sat down and said, what do I have to know? And asked a lot of people and then did a course with Logan Murray and just started doing it step by step. I mean, one of the things that, that, that comes to mind as I'm speaking to you is that as a young woman who was, you know, uh, taught to be very driven and very achievement oriented because of various things, you know, I'm, it's cultural and just my own family. It was really important to me to not bring that pressure to comedy because I didn't want to stop loving it and make it into something that I had to achieve. In. I had never done anything that wasn't about achieving goals and being first in the class. You know, I mean, I'm like a proper regular Indian kid. Yeah. So 
I wanted to not have that because I was so scared that that would spoil it for me. And then I knew I couldn't lose comedy, you know, but this thing came and it was mine in a way that spoke to me like I was eight years old or seven years old or 12 years old. And so I never wanted to put any pressure on it. I just wanted to keep on doing it. And Sandhog is your debut Edinburgh show. Can you tell, it, us, it, can it you tell us a bit about it, starting with the name, please? Uh, well, I can't tell you why it's called that, because then you have to come to the show. Because okay. then otherwise everyone will know, and then that'll be sad. It'll be like, it's, it's like, you know, if you go and tell someone who whether Emily Blunt in Gone Girl did it or not, you can't do that. <laughs> not in Gone Girl, in The Girl on the Train, you can't do that. You know, the show is genuinely about stuff I've been speaking about for the last little while, which is, I think it's genuinely difficult though rewarding to love very fully whether it's your parents or your children or your spouse or your lover to love fully is a real pain in the ass <laughs> I mean it sucks either you love your kids so much you can't think about you know like they they want to go out and have a sleepover and you think there's going to be a mass murder you know it, it, it's like that or you love your spouse a lot or your partner a lot, but you really hate the fact that you have to compromise so much. You're constantly conflicted. Yeah. Uh, so the show is effectively about what is that whole world of that kind of love and why it sucks and how you can try and make it a little better, but it's not going to really work. You just have to get on board with that and just eat shit. But yeah. then you get love, so it's kind of a nice combination. <laughs> I guess love is, it's irrational, really. If you look at it logically, it, it exactly. makes no sense. No, but it's something we all want because it makes no sense. But if you have it, it's like ambrosia. You know, it's like a nectar that you cannot get any other way. It's fantastic. And people say, oh, I was getting high because I was looking for love. Oh, I became a this addict because I was looking for love. Oh, I became very sad and left everything in the world and went and sat on top of the Himalayan mountains. I was looking for love. So it is a great attainment, but it's so hard. And sometimes you don't have a choice. It's like, I love this person. I love these kids. What am I going to do? Eat shit. <laughs> <laughs> the, the phrase eat shit doesn't come up in the show, but... I think it should. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think it's fundamentally about the relationship at the center of my life, which is a shared space between my kids and me and my husband and me and my parents and me. You know, it's a kind of a jostling in the, in the center of my heart. Of course, my kids take up the biggest space for sure. You have a kid and it becomes about them. I don't know. I've always been, I think one of the reasons I haven't wanted children is the fear of having ones that I didn't like or love. <laughs> well, you know what? I'll say something. I have a lot of friends who don't have kids, and I think that's fantastic. I mean, I I was very young when I said I wanted kids, and I I mean, I have had kids at great cost to a lot of my other ambitions and dreams, and even my physical health. But it's fine. You know, we decide what we want, and then if we're lucky enough, we go do it. What I will say is that I sometimes wish I like I could like my kids less. You know, you're afraid <laughs> that you won't like them. I want to like them a bit less. Why? Because I want to have some free brain space, man, <laughs> to myself. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's what the show's about. Amazing. And you've also just finished a Radio 4 series called Cindy Stan. People can listen to it on catch-up. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so the show is called Cindy Stan, and it's a show, it's four 15-minute episodes about sort of the world that I grew up in and I live in because it's quite complicated. My parents are from different parts of India. And that was very unusual when I was little. I didn't know anyone else who had parents in this combination. Mm -hmm. But they both retained their own families and communities. They, they sort of didn't really meet in the middle. 
And so when we met one set of cousins, they were like, God, you're weird. And then we went to the other set of cousins who were like, God, you're weird. And we were like, oh, we're weird. So there's that. I also grew up as a child. I grew up outside India. So I didn't speak any Indian languages. But then we moved back. And I immediately the next day went to an Indian school and failed everything. Uh, obviously, and I didn't know anything. My mother was like, oh, no, you'll be fine. Just go. And so there's all that. And then there's, of course, I'm Indian. My husband's Scandinavian. So and my kids are English. In a way, it's a prequel to Sandhog, as in it sets up who is this person, where did they grow up, how have they landed up here. And it was great fun because radio comedy has the beauty of you can make it stand up, but you can also make it other things. Yeah. And as a comedian, I would say it's a different muscle. It's more of a storytelling mode, but in front of a live audience and you need jokes. It was just, it was just such a pleasure to do. I mean, honestly, I feel so lucky that I could do it. And in a way, Sindhustan and Sandhog bring me up to speed with all the things I've thought about and written about since starting stand-up, really. You know, things like taking the, the circumstances of my life or the observations of this stage of my life and turning them inside out. And lots of people saying, oh, yeah, I feel like that, too. That is so wonderful. But it's nice to have that you know? sort of feedback that people are relating yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Because everyone has a mother or is a mother or has a kid or has seen a kid or knows someone with a kid or, do you know what I mean? It's, and at the end of the day, we're all living these lives that are not that massively different. Indeed. Can you tell us where people can see Sandhog in Edinburgh, please? What time and where? Yes. So Sandhog is going to be on every single day from the 1st of August to the 26th. No breaks because uh, I'm a hardworking gal. Yeah. Um, it's going to be at the Pleasance in the attic, the Pleasance Courtyard. The room is called the attic, and it's at 4.30 in the afternoon every day. So a great excuse to drink plenty after lunch <laughs> and then just roll into the show. You've definitely got the cell there. Just tell them they can have alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting to us. Oh, no, Mickey, it was my pleasure. And um, yeah, really good to talk to you. And like I say, keep enjoying the weather. Think of me. Hi, we're joined today by comedian Jane Hill, who is here to talk to us about her show that she's taking up to Edinburgh, which is called Addicted to Fun. Yes, because I am. I'm one of the world's funnest people. Did you take a survey to find that out? Yeah. I Well, I the, the poster is this photo of me on holiday and I'm just looking really gloomy and it's incredibly windy. My hair's all in my face and I just thought it sums up my life. You know, like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm really enjoying myself. But that's not the primary drive of what your show's about. It's more about the word addicted, isn't it? It is, yeah, it is. You spotted it, Hannah, well done. Well, the reason I brought fun into it is there was this whole period of my life for about 10 years where I was just the most fun. You know, I was the person everybody wanted on a night out. I was the person nobody would let drive because I was fun. And I had an absolute blast until the point I realised that there is such a thing as too much fun. And every time I used the word fun... During that 10-year period, I knew what I meant was absolutely pissed out of my skull, basically. I've known you for a long time. We've talked about this before. And when we were an online magazine, we, I believe you and Mickey, actually discussed writing a piece for us. Mm, hello, this is true. And you said that you didn't feel that the time was right for you to discuss mm. it. You really thought about it, though. And then I did. you just came back and said, I'm just, just not right now. Yeah, yeah, I wrote it. And I was being all oh, yeah, you know, this is kind of a really lightweight little thing that I'm, I'm just writing here. And you're right, I've had real second thoughts and I just thought I'm not sure this is the right time and I'm not sure I'm kind of in the right place to be saying all of this. 
So what's changed? I think what's changed is, do you know, I didn't even mean the show to be about this, actually, when I started writing it. I started writing it for the Leicester Comedy Festival in February. And the minute I started writing, suddenly, every story I wanted to tell involved this time of my life. And it all just started pouring out of me. I think maybe I'm in a happier place, so it feels now I can actually talk about, you know, some really quite interesting and quite difficult times and hopefully be funny about them as well. That's that's the key, I think. Funny, finding the funny in some really kind well, of grim situations. Well, you can. I mean, we spoke to Caroline Flint recently. Her mum was mm. an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. Yeah. We had a conversation and in it we did discuss... The, the gallows humour that exists around yeah. addiction and how when you're actually in the throes of either your own addiction or somebody else's, it is really funny. Really funny things yep. happen. And it's, it's delightful when you meet somebody else that has had that experience, which for her and I, it was the idea of finding hidden bottles. But yeah, yes, that you can actually yes. get a massive laugh out of. I, I actually, you know, there's that point where you think, I think I have a problem. Um, I would look up on the internet, you know, how you know if you're an alcoholic. And I go, I can't be an alcoholic because the first one is always, do you drink alone? And that would make me really angry because I lived alone and I couldn't work out how else I was supposed to do it. <laughs> you know, like invite the neighbours around to watch. It just it didn't make any sense. And I got really angry that how come I'm not allowed to have that glass of wine with my dinner? You know, that really civilised kind of middle class thing of pouring yeah. a glass of red like wine a- while you're cooking your dinner. Except because my bottle would have been finished before I'd even finished cooking the dinner. I, I literally used to try and find places to put my empty bottles so that my cleaning lady wouldn't see how much I'd been drinking. Because that was my kind of feeling. If you know, she finds out that I'm drinking this much, and I don't know what would have happened, but you and may have had to tackle it. I would have had to tackle it. Yeah, it, yeah. and um, I, I did literally go to different recycling bins, you know, because I thought somebody might be mm. have identified that I seem to be putting a lot of wine bottles in just one recycling bin so there were those little things but I always clung to the fact that nobody had ever had to put me in the recovery position at the end of the night and I'd had to do that for friends and I thought if that hasn't happened to me therefore I really can't be that bad a drunk yeah they call that bargaining don't they yeah they do yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) at what age are you talking about here I'm talking about mostly in my 30s I didn't really drink an awful lot as in my 20s you know or my teenage years at all But I think for me, it was kind of starting to do. There were two things. One was kind of being scared of my job. And the other was just the massive social anxiety that meant I could never go out and have fun. You know, I don't know if anybody else feels it. Whenever I do a gig, I say to people, anyone else suffer from social anxiety? They're like, no, because we're here. You know, yeah, we can't do. And if they did, they wouldn't say yes in a comedy show. And they've actually managed to get out of the house. Yeah. Um, and I would often have that thing where I would be preparing for a party or something that I'd been really looking forward to doing. And about up to about half an hour before I was due to leave, everything would be fine. And then suddenly I'd be like, I can't go. There's absolutely no way I can go to this. Why did I even think I could? Nobody wants me there. There's no point in me being there. So I might as well just stay home and write another poem, you know, or self-harm or something. And it's it was that you gave yourself options, Jane. Yeah, I always <laughs> had the options. Or I could, like, listen to Snacker and the Bunnymen yeah. or something. You know, there were and now there's Netflix. Exactly. And I think in my 30s, I thought, I can't go on like this. And I realised that if I'd had a glass of wine and had a few more drinks when I went out, that none of that social anxiety existed anymore. And I would have an absolutely amazing time and great fun. But? But, yeah. Yeah. What was the most funnest thing you ever did? Um, well, I do promise in my show that I will tell the story about how I nearly vomited over Noddy Holder. 
<laughs> I was singing Slade songs to Noddy Holder in a bar once. That was quite good fun. That is quite good fun. Yeah, that I mean, is. just sort of stupid fun, like just going on to the next thing and the next thing, realising I didn't quite know where I was because somebody had dared me to go on. I was once on holiday in France on my own in Lyon, and I went out drinking with a couple of American women who were staying at my hotel and then we went on to about the third bar and they dared me to infiltrate a group of French students start drinking with them instead and I went up to a French student and said um, to resemble I, I can't even speak French Dr Marguerite de ER <laughs> <laughs> and he was like oh yes I've heard that before and then the next thing I know I'm drinking with this huge group of French students the two women I'd come to the bar with have gone home well, they sound like a pair of oh, they, they really were. Yeah. And when I got back to the hotel, I had no method of getting into the hotel because I'd forgotten to take the door code with me. So that was... Actually, it wasn't much fun. I think I'm telling this story. Ah, oh, fun, fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and then I slept on the back seat of my car. I guess yeah. that's how the stories... It, the story changed and made you want to do something about it because you go, oh, yeah, there's this great night, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, it ended, like, not yeah, great. Yeah, that's the thing. It yeah. always ended not great. Or if it, even if it ended great, the next morning, of course... Oh, wasn't great. It's interesting because, actually, I mean, outside from my father, I know quite a lot of alcoholics. And I would say that some of them are physically addicted to alcohol. And some of them are psychologically addicted mm. to alcohol in the way that you seem to describe. Yeah. In that when it has gone from their life and they've stopped drinking, they consider things boring or mm. that they're not quite this, yeah. th that they really miss the either the social kick that it gives you mm. or the sort of the, the loss of inhibitions that it yeah. gives you. And they do struggle with the word fun because yeah. they, they just consider life to be more boring. Now they don't, especially with a lot of them have had to consider that they will never drink again. Mm. Yeah. And it's not just I've given up for my health on the short term. Yeah. It's uh, I obviously can't control this. so yeah. I'm going to have to stop forever. That's, yeah, that's it. Exactly. And it's been 15 years. And to give, for, for a while, everything was fantastic when I stopped drinking. You know, I just had the most amazing couple of years. And then, I mean, everything's fine. I have no plans ever to drink again. But me drunk is like, yeah, lots of fun. Me sober, I, I'm that woman in the corner of my arms folded with a kind of really prim look on my face, disapproving of everything going around me. And I can't help it. I'm like a maiden aunt. And it's uh -huh. very difficult to sort of break through that. You know, it's like I'm really... And I can't find myself saying to people, I used to be fun, honestly, trust me. You know, they are, I, can, I, can, I can identify that Jane is still fun. <laughs> yeah, let's well, that's confirm very nice that. of you. May I ask, did the social anxiety come back at all? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that's, I mean, I was thinking about this. I had a job for about four years as uh, the boss of a radio station. Um, and I used to get invited to a lot of evening do's. You know, I'd have to go to evening, early evening receptions where it'd be me and the, the mayor and, you know, all the local councillors and MPs standing around with some samosas on a paper plate making conversation again. And I absolutely hated those things. And there was one event I had to turn up to. I managed to get there and they didn't have a name badge for me. And I just remember they'd forgotten to do a name badge for me. And if you don't have a name badge, those things are the most difficult thing ever because you have to introduce yourself to people. And I just went and hid in the loos and then went home because I couldn't face it. And yet I was a woman in my late 40s, early 50s in a thoroughly professional job and just couldn't face the fact that I had to go up to people and introduce myself to them. So, yeah, it, it, you know, and just that thought, one glass of wine would have... Yeah, take the edge better, off. Would have Dutch, taken the edge Dutch off. Dutch courage, isn't it? Dutch yeah, courage. absolutely, yeah. 
If there's anyone listening to this that is thinking, you know, maybe they should give up drinking, can you tell us a bit about how you achieved it? Because it's a lot easier said than done. Yeah, yeah. actually, I, this is, sounds awful, and I think your point about being psychologically addicted is the key. Because I didn't mean to give up at all, but I thought I really need to do something about this. So I bought a book called The Easy Way to Control Alcohol by Alan, Alan Carr. Not, okay, the smoking yeah, guy. The smoking yeah. guy. And I just thought I ought to read this and it might give me a few tips. You know, I was that desperate. I was buying self-help books, you know, um, because I I had a feeling that my boss might be thinking about staging some kind of intervention. We'd had a talk, which is awful when your boss Mm -hmm. tells you that you're a horrible person when you're drunk. And, he, you know, you're like Jekyll and Hyde and you've really got to sort yourself out. And so I bought this book and I read it one Sunday and I haven't drunk since. And it was as simple as that. I didn't go into it meaning to stop drinking. It just, I think my mindset had just reached the point where I was ready to stop. And it kind of gave me the impetus. And the last thing it makes you do as you finish the book is to drink an alcoholic drink that you don't like. So I drank quite a large tumbler of neat scotch at three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. The only reason I had neat scotch at all in my house was I was training myself to like it because I felt it was the kind of drink I ought to like for the kind of person I am. Because I'd seen a film once where Jacqueline Bissett played a hard-bitten novelist, a film called Rich and Famous, and she drank neat scotch. And I'd always thought I ought to drink neat scotch because it's my kind of drink. That was my self-image. I I was was training myself. A sort of prop. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. You know, I'm I'm the kind... I I was always quite a blokey drinker. You know, I wouldn't ever do girl drinks. Wouldn't have a half. Oh, God, no. No, it was always pints of beer. None of these kind of fancy things with colours in you know anything like that nothing kind of it's got to be beer or wine or quite hardcore spirits yeah Um, but that that I just stopped basically Um, a book did it for me and the next morning I woke up and you know the the kind of alcoholics thing about a day at a time nothing like that for me it was like I will never have another hangover again ever and that was such a powerful thing to cling on to because they had got to be I was having a hangover every day because I drank every day. Yeah. There was only, I think, about two or three days when I didn't drink over a 10-year period, and that's because I was an- on antibiotics for an ear infection. And after about three days, I'd rather have the ear infection than not drink. So, you know, it was quite a powerful thing to tell myself. Britain, we have a, a massive culture of drinking. Mm. And it is the whole, oh, you're not drinking. or oh, you can't be designated driver every time. Yeah. That kind of attitude. Have you found that you have to have lines that you roll out? Yeah, well, I, I just say to people, I don't drink. And they're like, oh, and then they always start justifying their own drinking. Yeah, that was going to be and, my next question. Yeah, yeah. and so I, I just basically say, I don't drink. And then if they sort of inquire a bit, I just say, well, I used to drink quite a lot and I don't drink anymore. And that's as far as I'll go. But I think that hopefully gives the picture. But yes, people start justifying their own drink, especially people you know about my age you say oh you know I've been meaning to cut down I'm like I'm I'm not judging you at all Mm -hmm. but it there is that sense of what do you do how do you celebrate stuff how do you how do you relax Mm -hmm. in Britain we can't do any how do you cheer yourself up when you've had a bad day at work how do you get laid (laughs) well I mean honestly when I stopped drinking I suddenly had sober sex for the first time probably in my entire life and I was like what do you want to put that what that is ridiculous what a stupid ridiculous thing to do it's really really difficult and yeah how do you get laid I mean I think that's why British people drink so much yeah that's why another reason why I drank I think because I was a little bit a little bit late in in you know 
reaching full to the sexy party. <laughs> well, I just found if I'd had a few drinks and I was ready, you know, I don't know whether I was giving off more signals, but I certainly got a lot more sex drunk than I ever did sober. It is definitely cultural. I was talking to um, some friends of mine. Um, she's from Norfolk. He's from Birmingham, but his family originally from Hong Kong. He spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. And I was asking him what the culture around drinking there is. And he was like, what do you mean? I said, well, like, what do you do on a Friday night? And he was like, oh, no, you go to the cinema or you go for a meal. You yeah. mean, you probably drink with your meal, but the meal is the focus of it. He said, oh, and on a Saturday morning. And my friend Laura and I were like, you do shit on a Saturday <laughs> morning. And he was like, yes, because nobody's got a hangover. And suddenly I thought, basically, yeah. for about a decade, my Saturday mornings were an absolute washout yeah. because I was either still asleep or hungover or being sick or, yeah. 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 It was horrible. We get, I mean, even even now I'm thinking, you know, we get bladdered, we get rat arsed, we mm. get leathered, we get uh, trousered, we get out You of can use skulls. any word if yeah, you're saying yeah. with the right intonation. Yeah. So what I want to try and do is like find some words like other than abstain or sober. Yeah. You know, there must be some words for the kind of, I'm trying to see the good, bright. Lucid. Live, lucid. Yeah. Lucid. Alive, I think is quite a good yeah. one. Yeah. Healthy. You know, the state yeah. of healthy, healthy livered. Yeah. The state yeah. of not drinking. Uh, other what than do you do? Sober. I've got absolutely healthily livid. Livid, though I can't. <laughs> no, see, it doesn't work. I did this yeah. this big piece of work um, that I'd finished, and my boss said to me, "Oh, go home and pour yourself a nice glass of Pinot Grigio, which is really weirdly specific." And I would, I never did white wine anyway. It's white, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've lost track. And I said, "I don't, I don't drink." And he was just like stumped for a suggestion of what I should do to celebrate. Milk? Can you have a glass of milk? Oh. <laughs> yeah, but like, oh, that's so a and shoot some smack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, if I try, oh, I just know if I tried anything else, I would just... Oh, we've had this conversation about almost everything, yeah. so I don't play computer games because yeah. I would just oh, never come out yeah. of my house yeah. again. Yeah. You, you, you have that. Do you have that? Because you find a lot of the time with people who've had an addiction, mm. they, I mean, people I know, but also actually, if you look at, like, quite famous alcoholics in the public eye like they tend to then like for example Russell Brand's not a bad example of this like went from being like a, a drug addict to being a sex addict to being a workaholic <laughs> do you find yeah. that you've put you have other things in your life that have kind of you've become I mean the same with I guess we're probably all a bit addicted to our phones but I got a bit worried about my phone use I downloaded this app where it tracks your phone use and it said something like, you're in the top 20% of people. And I felt there was a congratulations there. But it didn't mean <laughs> that. It was like, yeah, so yeah. I do, you know, that's something I worry about psychologically. That's you and a load of 15-year-olds. You realise that changed, it is, don't yeah. you? No, it's, it, I had, Woo, to, I had to stage a phone intervention with myself. Yeah. To buy an alarm clock. Yes. So that I would leave my phone in the other room charging yeah. overnight yeah. so that I wouldn't be twatting around on Facebook yeah. and Twitter at like midnight so that I would actually like start sleeping yeah. <laughs> or reading yeah. reading books again and yeah. things like that because I was just like this is ridiculous like what, what, why, are you, why are you on you Facebook for 90,000 like, times like trying to finish it aren't you, yeah. you always, I always feel like oh I'm just trying to finish Twitter like, in, yeah. it doesn't finish that's how it works yeah, exactly so yeah no I had mm. to I had to stage a little yeah it's worth pointing out that Jane wrote one of the most popular articles on the Standard Issue website when we were an online magazine, and that was um, the Fleece of Despair. The Fleece of Despair, which is all about the perimenopause. Yeah, how's it going, mate? Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased to say I'm through the penny. Per- 
through I'm through all that nonsense now. Okay. So um Are you onto the main nonsense? I'm onto the main nonsense, <laughs> but actually it's it's great and I can say that once you're through it, it's it you do feel you get to that point where I mean I, I was having I mean that was such an anxiety making time mm-hmm. going through the peri, the perimenopause even down to things like I couldn't decide what clothes I should wear you know that was I just didn't know who I was or what I should be wearing or anything and I sort of feel now I'm kind of like fuck it you know mm. I'm 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 into the fuck it years okay you know where I feel good. really myself it's a whole new lease of life and obviously none of that period nonsense I had my final period at the age of 50 on my 50th birthday happy Happy birthday birthday. (laughs) well exactly and of course my partner had sent me away to the Cotswolds and I was lying on a massage table wearing paper pants wow that was just really just one last gift yeah exactly no I haven't had one for four months and you give me this on this day yeah wow poetic I mean I always wear paper pants is that not a thing no, I like the way that Jane used the expression. My partner sent me away. I know, I like <laughs> your gift. Or... Yeah, well, he sent me away. <laughs> Obviously, he didn't go with Jane. Where and when can people see your show? I am. I'm so glad you asked me that. I am in Edinburgh at the Fringe um, at the City Cafe on Blair Street, which is just off the Royal Mile, a room called Nineties. I'm at fifteen forty, which I believe is twenty to four every single day other than the middle Tuesday it's a free show but I shake a bucket at the end and not only that I've also got a contactless card reader this year because so many people last year said to me oh I don't carry cash but I'd like to give you some money so this year I've got a card reader as well and no flies on Jane (laughs) no that's what being sober does for you (laughs) it was a little tip from James Cook who tried it last year okay and it worked for him so I thought I'll give it a go this year yeah awesome so you know if somebody wants to so that's my show basically She's all Great. about the options, Jane. Really all is. about the options. All of them, yeah. Hello, we are joined by stand-up comedian and all-around top bird, Kiri Pritchard-McLean. Hello. Hi, mate. You are right? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. It is warm in here. It's warm, isn't it? You it makes me. brain melt. It melts. is warm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a facial from myself. Every <laughs> time I sort of move, like there's a gust from between my breasts. <laughs> the world's saddest spa. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the happiest, depending yeah. on how you look at it. Well, maybe. Yeah. I find something bleak about baths, just like, because that's yeah. quite a lonely soup, isn't it? So I don't need, <laughs> I don't need, a, I don't need a spa of myself as well. <laughs> Kiri has come in to chat to us about her forthcoming Edinburgh show, Victim Complex, and also her forthcoming tour of America. I know, with yeah. fellow comic Rachel Fairburn for All Killer No Filler. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Just behave yourself. How come this is all kicking off? I don't know. I don't know. I still think it's massively misjudged. Whereas. Rachel is convinced that we're going to be like the next joint first ladies of America. Uh, but yeah, so we're really lucky that lots of people listen to the podcast. Most of them listen in America and the live shows here have been going really well. So we thought, well, they thought the powers that be thought we should try America. And I, I mean, I, I'm very glad that someone's, <laughs> that anyone's coming because we're pleasantly surprised by the ticket sales. But I still think it's a huge error. <laughs> but I know I'm not going to say things like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it's a terrible idea. <laughs> but, but I'm really excited to go at the same time. So moving on from serial killers, 
your new show is called Victim Complex. Yeah, whacked a comma in there because it's yes. bloody edgy. No, right, okay. Really this this was my uh, grammar question. Why is the comma there? Because, well, victim complex is a word you see thrown around the internet a lot by letter men's rights guys. And it's this idea that anyone who's got a reasonable qualm about their own welfare uh, is, is just like a professional victim, which is just an insulting way to be anyway. That you, like, you go, excuse me, I'm not happy with this or is it okay if we look after these people and be like, oh, you just love being a snowflake. I'm like, no, I'd much rather be paid more and be able to get along like with my life easily like you are. But as it is, can we like address these problems? So it was that phrase. And then I've been in a sort of situation in my personal life, various actually situations throughout my life where I think because I'm quite l- loud and sort of... Uh, um, what's the right words to use about myself without sounding like a maniac? Well, I think I'm quite like an empowered person. I'm forthright in my opinions. So even since I was a little girl, like someone would do something wrong and and then the teacher would come over, the person who did something wrong would cry and I would get told off for it because I would be... that I would ne- ne- never cried as a little girl. And so I was always... My whole life I've been seen to be an aggressor, and I'm, I'm, in plenty of cases I have been the aggressor, but in, case, in places where I've definitely been the one who's been treated badly, it's never presumed that I would be because of how I carry myself, and I choose to carry myself like that because it makes me safer in other parts of my life, like my job, where it's important to me to be empowered and strong on stage and, and like I say, forthright. And then what I didn't realise is, like... I've, had like a lot of personal stuff going on let's keep it nice and vague and that like when it all happened and when it all came out it felt like no one cared so basically I had someone in my life who wasn't very pleasant to me and they came out and told my story like it was theirs and everyone went I'm so sorry you've had to go through this what a feeling to have someone tell your own your story that that they put you through and say it was theirs and everyone immediately assume that of course that's right, of course that stacks up. It's much more, it's far easier to believe that she's a bitch than this person perhaps did something pretty not nice that we don't want to believe about ourselves, that we let that happen. And so it's about that, because constantly finding like, am I a victim? Because I struggle to identify as it myself. In my idea, I have this like very snobby attitude of like, I'm not a victim because I've got a degree and I don't live in a council house and I don't have a black eye, but that's just not good enough. That doesn't mean like, because I remember people saying to me like, hey, you're being treated very badly here. And I was like, oh, well, they don't hit me. And it's like, that is not good enough. Like, that's not the baseline. So it's just that thing about, like, allowing yourself to be a victim. But a lot of the show is about how we don't actually have language for an empowered victim. We we just don't have it. Survivors. And, yes, we, we're, that's what they say about victims. Yeah. Cancer, they're cancer survivors. Because victim is so makes people sound passive. like they're small and passive. Yeah. 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 And like, I, I don't know, because I struggle with so much of the language around it. Like, I would never say I was a survivor. That feels too bold and too brave for what I went to. And sometimes having the language there to access really is such a relief. A lot of the show is about it is about gaslighting. And I didn't know what that word was until someone sat me down and was like, this is happening to you. And then as soon as they explained what it was, and, you know, you read all these, like, psychologies today kind of articles, you're like, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what I've been going through. And it, I just thought I was going insane, quietly going insane, and I didn't know what to do about it. And then when someone gives you the language, it's such a relief because you're like, 
I'm not on my own. If there's a word for it, other people have been through it. And it was, even though it's horrific understanding what you've been through, I was like, oh, God, I thought I was just mental and I thought I couldn't tell anyone about it. Yeah, it's like when you're poorly and you don't know what you've got and you're like, I just want them to find something. Yeah. And then I know what I'm dealing with. Exactly. It's a very similar thing. Can you tell us what gaslighting actually means? So the the definition, as I understand it, is where you manipulate someone psychologically into doubting their own sanity. I think it happens loads in work. Like, I was trying to explain it to, to my friend who had never been in a relationship, and I was like, you must have had that thing in work where they go, did you do those things I asked you to do on Wednesday? And you're like, oh, you, you didn't ask me to do it. Yeah. And you think, I've been started doing fuck all day. I'd love <laughs> to have done something. And you go, I definitely asked. It's okay, I'll do them now. And you're like, you definitely didn't ask me because I would have done it straight away. And you're like, what have they got to gain by this lie? And you don't, this is the something, if you can't see a specific goal, you're like, why are you lying? Like, it's it's such a frustrating thing. And this is the thing, it brings up frustration. Mm. Oh my God, it's so crippling because like, you want to cry. It's exactly, and I'm not someone who cries and you're getting angry and then you look like, well, okay, you're irrational. And, yes. then, and then you sort of like galvanize the other person's well, argument. Well, look how easily she just lost her temper then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's all this stuff. So, yeah, this this weird thing. And, and I had that. It's flip-flopping between exploiting, I guess, my reputation on stage, which I cultivate of being quite high status and in control. And, it, yeah, probably a bit of a bitch. And then going, oh, you should also know that she's mad. And then people just found that delicious and were like, absolutely, that must be what's happening. And then you're like... God, it was, I was crestfallen for so long because I was like, oh, these are people that I've helped and done stuff for and stood up for and and them writing, like, I'm so sorry you had to go through this to, to someone who's telling my story about themselves was just so difficult and made you... It just made me feel like I was kind of lost and then even people who know everything and then are going, well, there's two sides to every story. Mm-hmm. And oh, I'm like, yeah, yeah, there is. There's the lie and there's the truth. That yeah. is it. That is it. Like, oh, that, that almost gets to the point where your your mum says, I don't care who started it. Yeah, <laughs> I well, you should. Yeah. <laughs> but like this whole thing of like everything I worry about people thinking about me, you know, that I'm brash, that I'm insensitive, that, you know, like I'm a bitch that just took all those things and went, do you know everyone thinks this about you and this about you and th- like, and then not being able to speak up because you're worried that's what everyone thinks about you already. Yes, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. And it, it's weird as well because you try and rationalise it afterwards and go, why did they do that? And like, it's easy to go, well, they're a monster and they're evil. And I, I, I don't think it is. I think it's it's important to talk about the context in which that behaviour is allowed to occur because as long as the narrative that like bitches are tripping is out there, People who are painted themselves into a corner with shitty behaviour or lies will always go, well, that's my way out. And, like, I'm not excusing that behaviour at all, but we live in a world that allows that to exist. This all sounds hilarious. Oh, yeah, what a laugh riot. A An absolute show. laugh riot, yeah. This is actually the hardest, because, like, my first show was about uh, systemic racism and sexism. Huh? Lols. <laughs> and then my last one was uh, about a child being groomed. Right. Hilarious. Uh, and this one is, is about, th- but it's the most personal one and it's, it is actually the hardest to make funny. Can I ask, I mean, obviously you're talking in general here. I don't know how specifically you're going to talk in the show, but it, it does involve, like you say, somebody else's life with your life. Mm. Recently there were some issues of, uh, with stand-up comedians around freedom of speech and whether or not you are, it is right to put somebody else's life on stage. 
How does that idea affect you when you're sitting down to write a show for, like this? For the listeners, Kiwi nodded and did the Diana head tilt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so I did uh, Louise Ray's benefit gig for her court case because she was talking about her relationship on stage and her uh, ex-husband is uh, suing her for defamation. Um, so uh, it was something that was so in my mind. Do you know what? That is another difficult part of it is because I'm holding back for myself and for the audience the worst things that happen because I don't think it makes a great show and I don't necessarily want to go through it. But one of the hardest things is to be like, how am I fair in my dealing with this? So just like the fact of trying to contextualise it. Like what you want to do is like, they did this and they did this and they did this and they made me feel like this. But that's not enough because then you're an aggressive woman and you're unsympathetic. So to get anyone to listen to what you have to say, you have to provide balance, which I kind of feel is bullshit, that we should be allowed to say what we think and just be believed. But I know that's not the case. How did you start finding the funny then? Because it, you must have had to go through quite a lot of self-therapy before you got there so I did like I raised my eyes when I said that yeah there's weird sort of like actual physical things and and mental things I still am like oddly this show is part of the journey for me is to work because always when I get to a stage when I'm happy with something on stage I realize that's how I think about it like when I get to the point I'm like oh and I found that quite liberating to be like you say something, you're like, that's not actually how I feel. Or you're getting the laugh, but it feels like it's in the wrong place. And like, it's, so stand-up has been great for that. And also like to have ownership over my own story. Like I'm so lucky that I'm a woman where I live in a profession where I can have something like this happen and I can go, right, well, here's my way of doing it. I'm going to tell my story and you've all got to listen. Whereas if I, you know, just worked, you know, doing whatever in a bookshop, I probably wouldn't be able to have that. I just have to go silently mad in my head or hope that I had friends who are patient enough to listen to it for two years. So it's been really great in that respect, but it's been, yeah, to find the funny, that is the, that's hard. And I'm writing the show differently this year. I'm starting, because it's quite a complicated story. I'm starting with the structure and then putting the jokes in, whereas historically I've always started with the jokes and then sort of moved the structure in. So um, a lot of previews where it's just sad for about 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and also that's the other thing. So I've had two people come up to me after a gig, both women. So what happens after every gig is someone will message me, someone will tweet me, or DM me and say, you just sat there and told exactly what I went through. And that's why every time I'm like, I'm not going to do this show, I'm just going to change it, I'm just going to change it, I'm just going to change it. I'm like, no, I have to, because I don't see this as a story that's told on stage by stand-ups and or women. So I'm going to tell this story because I have to, because it's happening. It's happening everywhere. The last few PBs I've done, I've had people come up to me and say, oh, I just wanted to hug you at the end. And I have to get to the point where they don't feel like that. Because if they still want to hug me, it shows that whatever I'm pumping out on stage means I'm not all right with it yet. So I have to get to the point where I'm like, my story, my words, and I'm all right with it. But if I'm saying that at the moment, no one's believing me. So I I need to get to a point where it feels like uh, I'm over the worst of it and I'm telling the tale as opposed to I'm in the middle of it and you're watching someone try and work it out. As you've been going through this journey, and obviously a lot of women are relating to you, I'm going to assume that most of the people who say that was my story as well were women. About hundred percent, mate. About hundred percent, roughly a hundred percent. Give or take, take zero. One of them. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Right. Okay. So, have you found stuff that you could pass on as advice? Because I think one of the things that I found was like, you feel like you're the only person who's ever been through it. Yeah. So your show is obviously a help to people already. But is there anything else you've picked up and gone, ah? Oh, if I'd seen that or if someone had told me that? Uh, don't doubt your instinct. 
Like your instinct is just there to look after you. And every time I, every occasion I look back when I've got myself in a sticky situation is because I didn't trust my initial instinct on and, and like to do with people especially yeah. you know when I'm like oh I'm not sure about you and then your mates and then like three years down the line you're like I knew there was a reason I didn't want to be mate and I let you in because I like my other mate and then you're like you've suddenly got this toxic person in your life yeah. and like so when those alarm bells go don't let anyone else silence them and don't let yourself do it you just got to listen to yourself like that stuff is all in there to look after us and the the most damaging thing I did was to be like to just quieten down like my instinct and my internal monologue and, and doubt it and let someone else let someone else write it. Have you got any more telly in the pipeline? Um I've, Todd? I've doing some stand up on Comedy Central Live for the Comedy Store. I think that's coming out soon. Doing a documentary on Welsh people at the fringe. So yeah, I'll be on that. That comes out at the end of August after the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And it's the one place where people can see you in all your many hats, like a website or something? Yeah. CurryPridgeMcLean.co.uk. There you go. When is your show? Where and when? Pleasance Bunker 2 at 8 o'clock. So it's in the courtyard. For the whole run? For the whole run. No days off. And I do the Monday because I like money. No. (laughs) No, I don't. Like, it's the only way I can not make a loss. I was going to say, why are you going to Edinburgh? Yeah, I know. But it's like, I just think if I have a day off, it's no good for me. I forget the show in a day. I'd rather just keep going. I'm better the more I do. And you always get people who want to see your show during the festival and then they're like oh you're doing the monday and i'm like yes i am so we're all going to come and see kiri have our we're tickets already sunday. yeah come along join us <laughs> stalk us stalk kiri <laughs> it's a very small room i mean we'll i think we'll be able to tell who you are <laughs> thank you so much for coming to talk to us thanks for letting me come and just talk non-stop we're here with comedian actress Yep. Singer, all round talented person, <laughs> Ruth Bratt, to talk about Olivier Award winning. Olivier Award winning, yes, thank you. Yeah. Showstoppers. Hooray! Which is going back to Edinburgh going this back year. To Edinburgh this We're on at 6 pm in the Grand, the Pleasance Grand. There's a couple of late night shows as well. We went to a late night show when when we came to yeah, see you. Yeah, they're a bit more, not drunken from us, but drunken from the audience, so they're a bit more heady. The idea of you just getting hammered and <laughs> just going and making shit up. so hard. So we make up musicals, uh, we improvise musicals. So the idea was always that we would do a musical that just happened to be improvised. So the aim was to create musicals that could go on in the West End. And then we did them in the West End, so they can go on in the West End. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But so it's a different show every night. It's a different show every night. It's never the same twice. We have had a multitude of theories about how we do it, including people in the audience who we pay to give us suggestions, like plants. But they, someone said, no, I know this is true because I know someone who works for the agency that they employ, the extras agency, and they get £50 a suggestion. And we were all like, what? Why are we slogging our guts out on stage? It would be so easy to just do £50 a suggestion. <gasps> well, the irony is, of course, that we all know you and we came and none of us shouted anything out because we, we felt like if we shouted something out, it would look like It would like be that. weird, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've never shouted anything out in any impro show I've ever been to because of that very thing. And also it's weird 
I think. I think it's weird. <laughs> and it's split into categories, isn't it? What the audience shout suggestions for? We have a. We call him the writer. We've changed that to the chair because people go, "Oh, you've got a writer." Like, no, that's just what we call the person oh, who stands up at the beginning. I know. Uh, so we have someone who stands up at the beginning, and they are the link between the cast and the audience. And they ask the audience for the setting, what they want it to be about. Um, they ask them for musical theatre styles and genres or musical theatre composers that they'd like us to improvise in the style of. And then we ask for a title, and then we do it. And that's literally it. And people go, well, how? It's like, well, this is easy as... I mean, it's hard, but the easiest what? way to do it is just to make it up from well, what they That said. was my first question. How the fuck do you... I mean, how you do it, that's not the difficult part. How you do it well... <laughs> is the difficult part of it and you guys do 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 it well so. well we've been doing it for so this is our 11th Edinburgh um, we started in one of those 70 seater porter cabins in George Square with a cast of with a cast seven <laughs> yeah, yeah uh-huh. it totally was and an audience of seven seven <laughs> and every I mean every night we had to deal with the the tattoo you know and the massive explosion so most of our shows that year ended with like some huge war because <laughs> there was just this huge explosion at the end so we started there and we've kind of gradually moved up. But basically the way we do it is just really hard work. So we've met pretty much for the first, I'm going to say for the first seven years, every Sunday we rehearsed. Uh, practiced, because people go, how do you rehearse improv? <laughs> so we practice the skills that allow us to do the show. So basically it's just hard work and loads of time spent dicking about but presumably you have to keep up I mean there are more and more musicals released every year yeah it's kind of impossible so we have a list or when we started we had a list and we had I think our beginning list was I think 250 musicals that we had to have a like a working knowledge of some of them like we know are not going to get called like no one calls 1776 because it's not uh, and no one really knows it. So there's some that we can kind of get away with, just like a passing knowledge of. But obviously every year there's more and more new musicals, and then every place that we go to, we have to look at the musicals that were popular in that place. So when we went to New York, we had to look at what was on Broadway then, stuff that hadn't come over here yet, and then when we went to Canada, we had to look at all the stuff that was popular in Canada, which is very different from you know stuff that had never been on Broadway never been in the West End but that you know like Anne of Green Gables very, very popular so you know there's been this like spate of 90s band tribute ones yeah yeah like I don't know I think there was a Take That musical yeah and a Whitney Houston musical and a, and a whatever else musical Spice Girls and, yeah. yeah although that didn't yeah. go so well, did it? But <laughs> do you have to know about all of those yeah, as yeah. well? Do they count? They do. Uh, yes, they do. No, I won't say sadly. They do count. They do count. And so, I mean, there's nothing on my iPod except for musicals. That's all that's on there. Uh, that's all I listen to. Uh, I don't really listen to my iPod very much anymore because I'm a bit like, oh, I don't listen to any. <laughs> like, you know, that's all that's going to come out of it. Are you in a situation now? Are you working in a chocolate factory? Is it putting you off musicals? Oh, no, it kind of had the opposite effect because I didn't... Here's my admission. I didn't really like musicals. Uh, I don't like singing. I don't though. like singing. I hate happiness. musicals. Uh, yeah, I just... I didn't... I wasn't a big fan. I just found them a bit, you know, like, oh, all right, come on. I liked some of them. I've always enjoyed listening to them more than I've enjoyed going to them. What are the best kind of suggestions that people can throw out there? Anything that's genuinely inspiring. Do you know what I mean? No, well, it's all been so terrible. It's so awful. You know, when someone yells toilet, and you're like, you don't want to watch 
Mm. You don't want to watch that. You've said that to be funny, and that's fine, and that has its own place in in pro, and I totally get it. But when someone calls out a setting that is genuinely exciting for us, then that will create a genuinely exciting show for the audience. In the kids' show, because we don't preach in the kids' show. Whatever the kids say, we do. So there's a lot of death. There's, there's an awful lot of poo, uh, and we're like, well, okay, well, that's what we've asked for, so that's what that's what you get. So we never, you know, we never kind of moralise with them. So if they want mass death pile up, we go, okay, mass death pile up. Now what? And we make them. I mean, that would lead to a lot of poo. I mean, yeah, it really would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's often, I mean, to be honest, it's often the poo that causes the mass death pile <laughs> oh up. God, life's just a cycle. <laughs> yeah. So, but then we say to them, well, what happens next? And then they have to, they genuinely have to think, oh yeah, what does happen next? And they always have a good idea, and they always, you know, um, but they're pretty dark kids. But we never, we never moralise and we never preach. But there are certain things that you go. We're going to have to address... We have to address this. And it happens kind of more and more, really. So much Trump in the kids' show now. I don't know why. They always kill him, though. He got... (laughs) (laughs) He got kicked to death by a fairy in the last show that I did. Which was great. That's what he would have wanted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Give us a reminder. Where can we find you in Edinburgh? Uh, In Edinburgh, we'll be at the Pleasance Grand, 6pm every day. All week. All the time. Yes, all the The whole festival, apart from, I think, the 14th. But there are extra late-night shows as well on a couple of nights. Um, and for people not going to Edinburgh, uh, are you about? We are about. We do one Monday a month at the Lyric Theatre on Shaftesbury Avenue, which I'm going off to do now. Mm-hmm. And we also tour the UK on a regular, well, pretty much constantly. It's just a never-ending tour. <laughs> just round and round and round. So, yeah, we'll, we will be at a place near you. Is there a website where people could check stuff? Well, I think it's theshowstoppers.org I'm going to say it's theshowstoppers.org I thought for a minute you were going to say I'm going to sing I'm going to sing the website we should have got Ruth to make up a song what what were we thinking Um, it would be ghastly without a musician they're the the real magic are they? yeah I don't know how they do what they do the musicians are phenomenal we have I I mean Duncan who's our MD Duncan Walsh Atkins I, I think is probably the best at what he does that I that I've ever met of all the musicians I've ever met he's just he's almost he's almost psychic he can tell it he and he changes so fast like a lot of musicians understandably get a bit annoyed with improvised singers because we don't always finish a bar and we don't always finish the phrase in the way that musically perhaps you should (laughs) um but Duncan is so good at just letting that go and modulating to fit what is going on and he, he gives great offers of chord progressions and, and then he has these amazing other musicians, you know, who we have... Uh, I think we have about eight musicians now. So we have percussion and we have... Are you reeds. like a mob? Yeah, we're like a massive mob of weirdos <laughs> weirdo obsessives who sit and listen and go now what would modulation would make it sound more like sometime and less like <laughs> <laughs> terrible if you ever come and watch it 
watch them. Duncan never looks at his hands when he's playing the keys. I've never seen him look at his hands. He's always just looking at the other musicians and looking at the cast. One of the other guys, uh, Chris, who also plays keys, he's one of the other MDs, and he plays reeds. And often you'll see him, he's just looking at Duncan's hands, and so he's modulating just by reading what Duncan's hands are doing. And there was one day we looked over and he was, play, he was playing the clarinet. This was before we had percussion. He was playing the clarinet with one hand, watching Duncan and doing percussion, like shaking oh, an egg oh shaker God. with his other hand. What did we get Ruth in for? I know, right? You should be talking to them. <laughs> well, we do have, pretty recently, Duncan, who's our MD, got really kind of innovated by the fact that there are very few women in West End orchestras and West End pits and bands. And so we do... Uh, we've called it Ladies of the Stave because it's a joke, like Ladies of the Stage, but they're musicians, so they're Ladies of the Stave. It's good, I'm glad you explained uh, it. <laughs> and they have, a, they have a networking event before the show and then we have an all-female band on stage. So we have a female MD and an all-female band, which is very unusual. The only other one that's done that, as far as I know, is Heather's, which is also one you should check out. Uh, that has an all-female band and an all-female stage crew, which yeah, is amazing. Insane. So there's, you know... Exciting stuff like that. That seems a really good positive story yes. to end it on. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming to Chatswood. Thanks you marvelous for having creature. me. This You're is welcome. lovely. That was our show. Thanks very much for listening. As Mickey explained at the top, you can see all of the women that we just spoke to up at Edinburgh this year. Although you can see them in various other places, they all have websites. I'd advise you check them all out. If you are going to Edinburgh, you also probably want to consider getting a ticket to one of our shows. We've got four shows while we're up there, two in-conversation events and two nights of stand-up comedy. We've got loads and loads of great acts on at the stand-up night. And the in-conversation events are on the 12th and the 13th of August. On the 12th of August, we have Aisha Hazarika, Sharon Rooney and Lucy Porter. And on the 13th, we have Janine Garofalo, Sue Pollard, Louisa Romilan and the boss, Sarah Millican, making her only appearance at the festival this year. If you want to look for tickets for that, go to www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. We've done a playlist for you this week. You can find it on Spotify. It's Edinburgh Fringe themed. Also, two chops coming this week. One, which is a longer version of that interview with Ruth in which we talk about loads of stuff we talk a lot about Hamilton because you know Hamilton but also we chat about some some other great musicals that are coming up and she has some top suggestions of what to see and we actually learned something from her which is like the best thing and talking to learning stuff we have a second chops coming which is an interview that Mick and I did at the Imperial War Museum last week in which we talked to the author of a new book the Hurricane Girls Joe Wheeler and she had with her Candy Atkins whose mum Jackie Mogridge was one of the women that flew those planes during the Second World War and we had an absolutely great time talking to them about all sorts of stuff and I recommend that you listen to that. That is also coming Sunday. Um, And enough of my waffle, right? Like us, review us, rate us. If you're still listening at this final seconds of this podcast, I would imagine that you're committed enough to go and give us a five-star rating because that's helpful and also press subscribe because that is really helpful. Until next week. Standard issue for all women.